0: I grew up attending a small Methodist church just down the road uh, from the house where my parents still live and in the I guess you call it the front wall back there it would be the front wall uh, there was a large stained glass window uh, which was a copy of a famous painting called The Light of the World by William Holman Hunt I don't know if you can see it that's kind of a it didn't look quite like that because it was you know just kind of a knockoff in stained glass but I spent many um, worship services uh, staring at that window when maybe I should have been paying attention to something else, but Holman Hunt's original painting is a highly symbolic, uh, even allegorical interpretation of a different passage of scripture, Revelation 3.20, which says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. shows Jesus as... You can make out there uh, with a lantern uh, knocking on a door in the darkness. Don't confuse this painting, by the way, with the sort of knockoff by uh, Warner Solomon called Christ at at Heart's Door. That's the painting with the big heavy door and no latch on the outside because Jesus can't open up. Uh, He can't come in without an invitation, sort of like a vampire. That's a different passage, and uh, we'll leave the the debated discussion about free will for another day. But William Holman Hunt's message Uh, was closer to the meaning of Revelation 3.20. Revelation 3 is part of a letter Jesus wrote to a wishy-washy, lukewarm church. He wasn't speaking to the lost, tenderly and softly pleading for them to open up. He was speaking to the church, warning them to wake up, to get to work. William Holman Hunt's intent uh, with the painting that you see there is closer to the text of Revelation. In writing about this painting, he speaks of a summons to the sluggard to awaken and become a zealous laborer for the Lord. The closed door isn't directly about free will, but about an obstinately shut mind, uh, maybe a warning about hardness of heart. Uh, The door itself is far less prominent since it's overgrown with weeds and, and vines uh, that depict, uh, uh, Holman Hunt says, daily neglect the accumulated hindrances of sloth. Uh, he wrote that he intentionally uh, tried to make Jesus appear more solid than he usually would in the artist's style. Jesus is also crowned. If you could see and look closely, he seems to have both a crown of thorns and a crown of gold. You might be able to make out in the background there that dawn is breaking painting is set at a time when, to borrow uh, Paul's words from Romans 13, the night is far gone and the day is at hand. Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. I would be surprised, or I would not be surprised rather, if I learned that today's text had been shaped, it had also shaped Holman Hunt's thinking on this topic. In Luke 12, the master is not knocking on the door for hours, hoping someone will let him in. Uh, he is knocking and you better be ready when he does come. In the Holman Hunt painting, I wonder uh, if it's too late for the sluggard who's behind that door. And of course, one prominent difference between these two paintings is in Holman Hunt's painting, Jesus is looking out at you. So the question is are you awake? Not just are you still awake at that, after that art history lesson, but are you spiritually awake? Well, waiting for Jesus, staying awake, is part of what it means to follow Jesus, to trust in Jesus. In the first chapter of the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, Paul describes three elements of the Thessalonians' conversion, their coming to Christ. We often ignore the third. Paul says that they turned from idols, that's one to serve the true and living God, tracking with him there so far, and number three, to wait for his son from heaven. Now, when you and I think about waiting for Jesus to return, we can easily get sidetracked by all the sort of end times question. You know, there's the theological side of things, uh, the the discussions of views of the millennium and the tribulation and the rapture and the place of Israel and all of that business. Um, But we can also start thinking about Current events, what's going on in the world, things seem so bad, surely these must be the end times, right? Do do current events mean that the end is near? Well, to be honest, looking at the course of history since New Testament times, it's it's always been kind of bad and the end has always been near. Uh, Since the day of Pentecost, that's when, biblically speaking, the last days have begun. What I'm more interested in right now is why do we ask the question? Why are we wondering if current events mean that the end is nigh? What would we do with an answer to that question if somebody could confirm yes or no? Uh, we might simply be distressed at what's going on in the world and maybe trying to find some, some meaning in it, trying to make sense of it. Or are we looking at the way the world is going and thinking, you know, Mr. Wizard, get me out of here sort of thing. Are we, are we, we, we hoping to, to escape the world? Well, the waiting of faith, waiting for Jesus' return, is not an escape plan. It's not sort of idly staring at the sky, hoping to see Jesus coming back from the clouds. It's not an obsession with the rumors and blood moons of would-be prophecy experts. The waiting of faith does not say, Jesus is coming back soon, so who cares about the world's mess? The waiting of faith says, Jesus is coming back, so we better get to work in the world doing the things that he has called us to do. Waiting for Jesus' return is not meant to drive us away from the world, but deeper into the world. The waiting of faith, as I'm using it, is an eager expectation for Jesus' return, which shapes the way that we live here and now. Last week, John uh, preached from uh, the first half of Romans 13, a famous passage that calls us to honor civil authority, uh, earthly government, pay your taxes, uh, that sort of thing. The next part of Romans 13, though, reminds us that the end is near. I quoted it earlier, right? The the, the night is far gone, the day is, is at hand, the hour of salvation is nearer than when you first believed. Jesus is coming back, and if you believe that, you better wake up and start living the way that he's called you to live in this world where he's called you to live. If this world didn't matter to Jesus, why would we still be in it, right? So if you believe the gospel... If you believe Jesus died for your sins, rose for your justification, is reigning at God's right hand until his enemies are under his feet, if you believe he's coming again to judge, as we put it, the quick and the dead, the living and the dead, these beliefs need to reshape the way that you view your life and from your life, the way you evaluate success, the way you find worth and meaning in your life, the way you live and behave the way you handle difficulty and suffering it doesn't mean instant perfection in any of those areas or Paul and Jesus wouldn't have given instruction and encouragement right nevertheless real faith means real change and so that is why to instruct his followers in this area Jesus charged his disciples in Luke 12:35 stay dressed for action Keep your lamps burning. And then in verse 36, he calls them to be like servants, ready to open the door for their master when he returns in the middle of the night. Some explanation for those three images might be helpful to you. Uh, Stay dressed for action. Sort of an updated translation of the the old-timey King James-y sort of way of saying, uh, gird your loins. Um, Fun phrase. Uh, Back then, they sort of wore long tunics uh, sort of like robes which are nice in middle eastern heat Uh, but if you need to get to work all that excess cloth gets in the way so they had a way of kind of wrapping and tucking and tying it around the waist Uh, which is probably not comfortable for sleeping uh, but much better for getting to work right keep your lamps burning Obviously, they didn't have electricity, electric lights. They couldn't just flip the switch on and stay up all night like we tend to do now. Uh, It's dark when the sun goes down, right? So if you want some light, you've got to set something on fire, which is kind of fun. Um, The lamps here are oil lamps, right? So if you're going to be awake during the night to stay ready, you're going to need to tend that lamp well and keep it burning. If it goes out, it's going to be dark and hard to set set back on fire again right you might set yourself on fire spill the oil on yourself and that would be bad um, I don't know why my mind goes there but you have to keep an ample supply of oil and, and wick and that sort of thing and, and in order to have light at night and then this idea of waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks so wedding feasts weren't just one day. They could be week-long events, and the master may or not may or may not stay there for the whole shindig. Um, it would be odd for him to purposefully travel home at night unless he got delayed on the way, but again, without electric streetlights out there, uh, it's dangerous if he is out at night, uh, so he's going to be eager to get in to his the safety of his home as quickly as possible. This is where the servants come in, because rather than, you know, having a, a a lock and a key to, to open, uh, he would have a servant uh, on the other side who could open the door from the inside and, and let him in. Uh, we call this kind of servant a porter in English. So if you get home at night, you don't want to have to pound on the door uh, and shout to wake up a, a porter who's fallen asleep. You want him to be ready and attentive so you can get inside. And if it's the middle of the night. What verse 38 calls the second or third watch, you're going to be very pleased if you find that your servant was awake and alert and ready to go as soon as you got there. So it's understandable that the master would be relieved in that situation, even appreciative. But something unexpected happens in Jesus' parable, doesn't it? The master himself, he doesn't say, Hey, just good job, pat him on the back, and I'm going to bed. Uh, Where the devil are my slippers or something like that. The master himself puts on the clothing of a servant, tells the servants to recline at the table. Remember, they would eat lying down back then, which gives me heartburn just thinking about it, but that's what they did. And then the master serves a meal to the servants. He serves them, puts them in the the place of uh, where he belongs. This would have been an unheard of, outrageous Ridiculous, even things to do. What would the neighbors say if they heard about this? You know, are are our servants going to expect this? What are you doing? They surely don't deserve such special treatment. They opened a door. Big deal. That's what servants do. Uh, Even if they did deserve the, the kind of treatment and reward you're giving them, why on earth would you do it yourself? Just hire some other servants to do it. Why humiliate yourself by taking on the form of a servant while your slaves? at your expense. It's true. All they did was open a door. It's not a difficult job, is it? It doesn't mean much in terms of, of market value, but it meant a lot to their master. So general principle here for Jesus' parables and how we interpret them, when something unexpected or unusual or crazy happens, that's tends to be where you want to focus your attention. So think about this unimaginable reward promised to those who heed Jesus' words and stay alert, stay ready for his return. Think about what this is really about. Uh, Think of what it took for Jesus to serve up that reward. Jesus, Paul says in Philippians, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He once actually did dress himself for service and wash his disciples' feet, right? And not long after that, he took on the clothing of a man condemned to be crucified, which is no clothing at all, suffered and died in humiliation and agony, served us, so to speak, his own flesh and blood. This same Jesus will one day bid his bride to sit at the table For the marriage supper of the Lamb. And what did we do to be worthy of this? Open a door? Less than that even. That's the point. This was never about the the value of the work that we do, but the grace of the Master. There are riches of grace beyond our imagining, what Peter calls an imperishable and unfading inheritance that's reserved in heaven for you, for the people of God. And it's all purchased and preserved by the humble, humiliating, literally painstaking service that Jesus rendered on our behalf. We don't earn salvation or any of its rewards or benefits. Our best service is unworthy. It's such a small thing considered in itself. It's imperfect, it's incomplete, it's tainted by sin all the way through, but it means so much to our master. The ability and execution and fruit of our service, that's all purchased by the greater service of Christ. The sin that remains even in our best moments, that's atoned for by the blood of Christ. The living sacrifices that we offer to God, what does Paul say? They are holy and acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. His grace provides what is worthy, makes up what is lacking washes away what is unworthy. So believer, your master delights in your service. Your service didn't earn his delight. God delights in your service for the same reason he delights in you. He looks at you and sees Christ. He looks on you with eyes of love, not just any love, but the eternal love of God the Father for God the Son. This is how God sees You, How he sees your service to him. Your work may be small in the world's eyes. It may be small in your own eyes. It may even be small in your church's eyes. But it is never small in God's eyes. No matter what talents he gave you, God says to each one of his servants who are faithful, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy, the joy of your master, his delight. That's Jesus' point in this first section, 35 to forty. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. It's to promise a blessing. Something wonderful is on its way for the people of God. And you don't know when it's coming. We'll work in verses 39 and 40, right? Verses 39 and 40 compare Jesus coming to a thief in the night. Now, coming like a thief. thief in the night obviously sounds ominous. But the point of comparison here is that the thief in the night and Jesus coming are both Unexpected robberies don't happen when you already know that they're going to happen. Otherwise, you do something to keep them from happening, right? Unless you're trying to commit some kind of insurance fraud, but that's another story entirely. In this case, something good is coming, not something bad, but you don't know when, and you need to be awake for it. Think of it this way. When it comes to Santa Claus... Uh, you're supposed to be asleep when he comes, right is that that the, that's the rule uh, otherwise you 're naughty and you get a lump of coal. But what if Santa were to change his policy on this? What if Santa said, "You know kids, santa can't make it down that chimney anymore." He's been doing this for I don't know how many years, and it's just Santa needs to come through the front door now. Uh, he's going to need you to open up the door for him, and Santa's got a lot of, of houses to, to, to hit, you know, and this one Christmas night, so if you're not ready to open the door right away so he can get in and give you your presents, he's going to have to skip your house. And you won't get any presents. Um, can you imagine the kids, if that were the system, would they ever get to sleep? uh, Eyes just glued to the door all night, not even blinking, taped open if need be, uh, dried out and bloodshot. Should try this. That might be fun. Anyway, what what kind of (laughs) don't learn from my parenting? What kind of watchfulness, what kind of wakefulness should we have? Joyful expectation, eager longing, confident hope that keeps us spiritually awake firmly believing there's a reason that it's better to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents of wickedness but there's another side to this waiting again I kind of alluded to earlier we don't wait just by standing there staring at the clouds waiting for Jesus to come back we wait for him by doing the work that he has given us to do. So waiting looks like working. We see this in the second half of today's text, in verses 41 to 48. Here we see that there's active work to do while waiting for the master to return, beyond simply being at your post. A wise and faithful manager in this next parable is given responsibility to take care of other servants, right? To to give them their, their portions of food. Once again, there's blessings if the master comes back and finds him doing what he was supposed to do. Highest blessing a servant could hope for, right? He's, he's placed over all his master's possessions. What a place of honor. But what happens if he doesn't do his job? If instead of caring for the other servants, he beats them, uses their rations of food and, and drink, presumably to throw himself a drunken feast... What will the master do? What does it say? Cut him to pieces. Throw him with the unfaithful. He literally finds himself on the chopping block. He gets the axe. He couldn't hack it, so it hacks him. There's no chance to cut and run, just cut, right? He has to split. You feel bad for the guy, he's literally beside himself. Completely gone to pieces. I should cut it out, I know, it's not funny. (laughs) Uh, But the dismemberment uh, is followed by some lighter punishments, right, to varying degrees. Another servant who knew the master's will but simply didn't do it, he gets a severe beating. Uh, Probably this is a servant who had less responsibility. He he still had his own work he was responsible for but didn't have uh, oversight of others. And then a third servant didn't Seemed to get the memo on what instructions were left for him to do, and, but still acted in a way that deserves a beating. Still ought to have known better. So he's just lightly beaten, which makes me think of eggs or something. But Jesus makes, exact, makes the point to all of this explicit in the end of verse 48 uh, in this passage. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much... They will demand the more. So with great power comes great responsibility, right? The more authority, the more knowledge, the stricter the judgment. It's like James 3.1. Uh, Not many of you should become teachers, for you'll be judged with greater strictness. The manager who abuses his authority and his fellow servants is hacked to pieces. That seems kind of um, harsh to us, but you have to remember what this is about. Uh, th- this is This isn't just a parable about servants this is somebody that um in a spiritual sense has authority that they've abused to the detriment of others the servant who was knowingly insubordinate is beaten um more than the one who didn't get the memo so at this point you might be wondering am i one of these servants not me i mean not me specifically maybe you um, you, you might be wondering, you maybe you're wondering if I'm one of these servants who's going to get beaten. I don't, at this point, I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't, put a, uh, I wouldn't blame you. Um, but uh, are, are you, you might be wondering, are you one of these servants? When Jesus gets back, is he going to beat some of us a little bit uh, before he lets us into heaven? Or beat some of us a lot? Well, first let me say that while the Bible might teach degrees of a reward for Christians, that's not the same thing as punishment. Christians, and while Paul does tell the Corinthians that, you know, those who try to build up the kingdom with sort of junky things, straw and useless stuff, uh, they'll see their work go up in smoke, which won't be easy, that's still not quite the same thing as punishment. Uh, For that matter, God disciplines us in this life, the Lord chastises those he loves, but that's not the same thing as retributive punishment either. I believe that when Paul said in Romans 8, verse 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, what he means is that there is therefore now no condemnation. The condemnation has been eradicated. It's gone, all gone, all of it. It was laid on Jesus who paid it all. However, thinking about the context where Jesus has been preaching um, throughout chapter 1 and even back into chapter 11... Jesus has been warning about hypocrisy and self-deceit. He has warned against assuming that you are a follower of God when you're not. In 1135, he said to be careful lest the light in you be darkness. He spent good chunk of time blasting the pharisees and the teachers of the law who thought they were so godly but they were spiritually dead and remember these guys were experts in the scriptures they had god's revealed will they spent their lives studying it they knew what it said inside and out they're not like ignorant pagans who don't even have the bible let alone know the bible not only that god entrusted them to teach it to others they must be good if god would trust them with all of that that's not enough it's not enough to know God's will even to know it well even well enough to teach it to others if you show no signs of doing or even caring what God said remember as we consider who this is about that someone in our passage has already asked that question in verse 41, Peter asks a question. Now, if I were Peter at this point, I might have asked Jesus, you know, if staying awake is so important, what were you doing asleep in the boat while it was sinking? But that's why Jesus didn't call me to be one of the 12, one of, one of, one of the reasons anyway. Uh, instead, Peter asks if the teaching about staying awake is about us, meaning the 12, or about everyone. And Jesus had been talking specifically to the disciples, but while crowds were gathered around, so in in one sense it's a good question, and the section here on, we'll just call it the beating and dismemberment section, for lack of a better word, is actually given to answer that question. Jesus answers it sort of indirectly, not by saying it's about you or it's about everyone, but by giving a fuller picture of how Jesus judges the world when he returns. In effect, the answer is that Jesus' return matters to everyone. Everyone is tasked with serving their creator. We are all made to be servants, everyone in this room. Jesus is coming back, and when he does, he'll see how that service has gone. Judgment will take into account uh, responsibility and the knowledge given to each one. So on one hand... um, The concept of degrees of punishment is just one part of the answer to common questions about the lost who never got to hear about Jesus. Hell is not a one-size-fits-all destination. Someone who never hears is judged less severely than someone who heard the gospel and rejected it, and less severely still than maybe somebody who... Uh, abused the authority that they had to harm others for their own benefit. There's more to be said about questions like this, but just one piece of the puzzle. But, But for today, we need to look at the other side of the coin. For Peter, for the disciples who had been following Jesus and listening to his teaching, for those who had been given so much, more will be expected. So there's a warning here. Yes, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but don't just assume that you're in Christ Jesus. Don't assume that because your theology is right, or your church attendance is right, or your understanding of the gospel is right, don't assume that you are right with God. Life is too short and eternity is too long to live on assumptions. Learning about Jesus is not the same thing as following him. You cannot be a follower of Jesus and not follow Jesus. You can fool the world, but you can't fool Jesus. He's not impressed by how much you know or how highly people think of you. The question is, what will Jesus see in you, in your life, when he comes back? The Apostle James James famously challenged us all with, Hard words that faith without works is dead. It's not that faith alone is not enough. Even faith itself technically isn't what saves us. Grace saves through faith in Christ. Faith doesn't save without works because it's dead without works. To put it another way, it's not faith without works. The time is short, uh, both for Jesus' return and for this sermon. So hopefully by now you've picked up the big question that we all need to ask ourselves. Are you waiting, really waiting, alert and attentively waiting, eagerly waiting for Jesus' return? Not just by looking forward to it, but by being ready for it. Here's another way to maybe think through that question in your life. What if Jesus never did come back? Would your life look any different? Paul said that if the dead are not raised, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Are you you eating, drinking, and being merry? He said if our hope in Christ is just for this life, we are above all men to be pitied. There's a sense in which what Paul is saying is that we are banking our lives on Jesus coming back. If I can, if you'll give me a, a bit of grace with this wording, almost betting your life on Jesus' return. If He doesn't come back, is there anything that that will have been for nothing? Not that we're not confident in Christ's return. I can't tell you from the, the pulpit here what this needs to look like for each individual life. It's it's not one size fits all. If you want to flesh this out a little bit more and what this practically means, you could. Um, I think they may be online. Maybe not. I'll I'll ask our guy who's now in charge of that. But go back and listen to John's sermons from Romans 12 and Romans 13 and how to live in the church and the world. Go back and look at where we've been in Luke for a while. What Jesus said about your attitude toward money and possessions. But it does look differently for for different people. Jesus calls some people to the other side of the globe, and some of you, he's, he's, he's had you here all your lives. It's not about whether your life is radical or ordinary. It's about whether you're faithful wherever God put you and whatever he has called you to do. It's about whether you're doing that work, whether it's impressive to earthly eyes or not, because you know it matters to your master. You know he already knows you. You know he chose you. You know that you don't need to fear because Jesus said, It's his delight to give you the kingdom. And that's the blessing that you're looking for. That's where you're looking for your blessing in Christ's return. It's good to enjoy these things in this life, but always within the context that Christ is coming back and it's his assessment of my life that matters, not the world's assessment, not my comfort here and now. It's his evaluation that I'm ultimately living for as I make the decisions that I must make in confidence that he does love me. You know that he's coming. That changes everything. You don't need to worry what the world thinks about you because Jesus is coming back. You can stand firm in the face of temptation because Jesus is coming back. You can do the right thing even when it costs you because Jesus is coming back. You can rejoice in suffering because Jesus is coming back. You can have hope even in your deepest grief, because Jesus is coming back. You can love people like me who are hard to love, because Jesus is coming back. And you can freely give your money, your time, yourself, because Jesus is coming back. You can deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is coming back for you. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we give you thanks that you did so love the world that you sent your Son, and that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. We look for the return of your Son. We look for the life of the world to come. And yet we know that uh, looking for these things does shape how we live here and now. And so we ask for your grace. We ask for your mercy. We confess that we have not always lived with the return of Christ in view. Or if we have, we have uh, misunderstood it. Uh, We confess that we have lived in ways that are no different than those around us, simply seeking um, lives of comfort and ease and success, judging ourselves by uh, the same standards that the world around us uh, places on what life is all about. And at times, if we have looked forward to the return of Christ, we have looked to it only as uh, an escape without the mindfulness that uh, our Savior calls us to here, that knowing he is coming back drives us to the life of service and ministry, loving one another reaching out with the gospel, all the things that you have called us to do. We ask for your grace. We ask for your mercy, forgiveness, and we ask that you would reshape our hearts even now, fix our eyes on Christ, who is ultimately our soul's reward. Help us to evaluate our lives rightly, not that we might Fear and tremble and despair, but that we might have sober judgment about how we have been living, that we might confess the sins that we need to confess, but the, you would also open up our eyes to the ways you have been at work in, in our lives, the evidence that is there, ultimately that we would come away with greater hope greater joy, more eager expectation of this glorious truth that your Son is coming back. Help us to rejoice in faith, knowing that the blessing has already been earned by his work on the cross and that we are simply called to stay awake And what a glorious inheritance is ours. We ask these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.